welcome back to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Sai. I'm John. And I'm Jason, who, according to Chartable, is the host of the number 24 science fiction podcast in the country of France. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) That is not an honor that I thought I would have waking up this morning, but Chartable tells me that I am one of the 25 most popular sci-fi podcasters in the entire country. Maybe I should sponsor a team in the Tour de France. (laughs) On this episode, we're marking the release of The Celestial Toymaker on vinyl with a discussion of this most unusual William Hartnell story. So how familiar was everybody with this story already? Uh, Simon, was this one that you regularly revisit? It's not one I regularly revisit. Um, Last time that I listened to this, I remember I was in the car traveling to and from Watford to visit my in-laws. And um, basically, I tweeted how stupid Dodo was throughout the whole story to great acclaim, as I remember. There was a lot of comments about that and all the silly things that she does throughout this story, which I'm sure I will be touching upon very shortly. I hope, I hope you weren't tweeting while you were driving. No, no, no. I was the passenger. <laughs> we're fine. <laughs> How about you, John? Um, yeah, I, I am too somewhat familiar uh, with the Celestial Toymaker. Uh, it's one of the last ones. So I, I'd seen episode four on the it's the Lost in Time DVD set. Uh, so I had a vague sense of how it looks. There are um, the, the, the set photos and things, aren't there? I'm sure I've seen Michael Goff in his regalia uh, in full colour. I have not read the, the novelization. I think that came out after I sort of finished collecting Target books. Um, so it's always been it's, it's always been a kind of a, a little bit of an outlier for me. You know, you know, very very fond of the Hartnell stuff generally. I tend not to like and so certainly this, that, sorry is this this is very boring isn't it i'll i'll, I'll do it in funny voice that would help um I, I tend not to like these kind of bottle stories you know sort of things that are sort of in a you know like a pocket universe or a little you know separate dimension you know there's obvious kind of uh budgetary reasons for doing it um, but, uh, you know, the older I get, the, the fonder I get of things like um, the historicals and the, you know, the, the not previously highly regarded things like the web planet and stuff like that, um, just because they have a context, you know, but uh, s- stuff like this and uh, to, to an extent, the mind robber, although the mind robber's got enough going for it. I really like it. Um, but, you know, things that are just totally re- removed from context and just have a handful of characters going through a thing are less intriguing to me as a, as a, a kind of rewatch proposition. Does that make sense? It's like It feels like something you can pretty much get everything you're ever going to get out of it in one or two um, uh, runs through. So, no, it's, it's, it's not one I've gone back to. Um, and, you know, the, there are aspects of the story now that, that make it a bit less comfortable uh, than, than some of old Doctor Who. So it's, it's not high on the watch list, but, you know, it's, it's part of the corpus. So, yeah, you know, fond of it, but not that familiar. And that's the end of my very long answer. <laughs> yeah, there was a Radio Times photo shoot, I think, that supplied us with oh, uh, like yeah. the imagery for this, some, some colour photos, yeah. yeah. There are a lot of photos from this story, yeah, this, uh, the uh, the complete history has got some really beautiful photos in there. I think yeah, it's got full color ones and things. 
What this does work as, sorry, sorry, Jason, I'm sort of cutting into your time now, but the, what, what this does work as is a, um, a, a, a kind of next door neighbor to things that were on at the time or about to be on. So things like the Avengers and Corridor People and Gurney Slade and all those sort of slightly kind of wacky non-conventional narratives. And, you know, it has a kind of, um, I think you can sort of, without much difficulty see this evolving into something like the prisoner you know whether the environment is the Mm. same all the time there's just a handful of people in it so there's not really that much that can happen and that definitely Mm. is yes mark's mark's nodding and everyone's assumed their very relaxed body language (laughs) simon you didn't have your hand in front of your mouth in an appalled expression that's more like (laughs) (laughs) Jason, you, you've analysed this story, you've, you've written about this quite extensively. Yes, but before we talk about the boring stuff, like my opinion, we're going to talk about that pun that you dropped in the intro to the episode. You said we are marking the release of the Celestial Toymaker on vinyl, but your name is Mark. So I think we're also simoning the release and johnning <laughs> the release. And Smudge and I, sitting here in Brooklyn, are jasoning and smudging the release. <laughs> Can I just say that Johnning the release sounds filthy and the others sound all right? (laughs) (laughs) So I started collecting the novelizations rather famously when I was 11 years old. And I would have gotten the Celestial Toymaker novelization when it came out, which is probably 1986. So it's coming up on my very popular in France podcast, but not for, <laughs> not for at least a year and a half because it's all the way down in the production order. And I'm only on book number 45 this week. So I would have gotten 86, would have been about 13 years old when it came out. And I loved uh, the book because when you are you know, a tween going on a teen and you're in a book where the characters are playing deadly versions of shoots and ladders or as it's called in the uk for some reason snakes and ladders which i never understood or when you're playing a deadly game of hopscotch that's awesome stuff when you are at the age group that i was when i first got the novelization so i thought it was great plus even though the novelization has jerry davis's name on the spine i'm pretty sure that his co-author wrote every page of text except for the foreword And she was writing at a much younger age level than your typical Ian Martyr or David Whitaker or Mark Platt novelization. So that book was exactly suited to my age level at the time that I was reading it. So right off the bat, I was a big fan of Celestial Toymaker. Plus you have in the Jeremy Bentham chapter of A Celebration, the 20th anniversary book, you have a very glowing review of Celestial Toymaker in that chapter. So from all accounts in the 1980s, I thought this would have been one of the greatest stories of all time. Now I can see my co-hosts eyes are all glazing over in their respective Zencaster windows. So if anybody (laughs) wants to jump ahead, somebody can just imitate Michael Goff and go, go from minute 17 and fast forward. (laughs) Then in 1989, Batman, the movie comes out and becomes a huge freaking deal. And who plays Alfred in that movie but the Celestial Toymaker himself? Then as the one American who had ever heard of Michael Goff before Batman, I was able to say, I know who that is. 
because I had his picture on the cover of the novelization of Celestial Toymaker, see? And then discontinuity guy comes out in 1995 as a counterpoint to the Jeremy Bentham chapter trying to update received wisdom on all these Doctor Who stories. They also were very glowing towards Celestial Toymaker. So up until I am, you know, about 40 years old, there's never a bad word said about the story. So my wife gifted me the compact disc for this early on in our relationship, probably the early 2000s. She got me that on CD and Mythmakers on CD. So I would play those over and over again on, on long car rides. Then you have Peter Purvis doing the narration, and I already thought it was a good story, so I never reacted critically to it. Then I discover Elizabeth Sandifer's blog, probably in 2011, and she made her name tearing apart the arc and then tearing apart this story and accusing them of the most vile racist crimes, basically accusing John Wiles of trying to resurrect the KKK inside TV Center in 1965 and 1966. And that was the moment that put her blog onto the map of Doctor Who consciousness, and she's never left it. So I then re-revisited the story in 2013 for my much lower traffic blog than hers, and that was uh, the old Doctor Who novels at WordPress. And I tried to do a counter-critical reading of the story to diffuse some of her criticisms, which I thought were factually inaccurate. Other people have done a much, a much better job than me over the years of not debunking, but at least having a conversation with her critique. I now recognize there are three significant problems with the story, but I think I'll save those three problems for the next go-around. But the point is, I enjoy the story, I respect the story, I just don't love the story. And if you look at the Hartnell years in sequence, I think it's a middle-tier episode at best. Well, I wonder if your point that you make there, Jason, about being aged sort of 8 to 10 to 12 um and seeing this story for the first time which a lot of those early fans who were writing about the show in the 80s were that age whether that actually captured their imagination because they were the perfect age for for the story and so those of us who've experienced it sort of later in life um are coming at it from a different angle and as a child you get swept away with the games that you'd have you'd have played these are exactly the kind of party games that were still being played in the 60s 70s and 80s and so perhaps it that reaction colored their reaction to the story and that's why they're so fond of it i was still playing musical chairs at birthday parties at age 11 that's a game that you know you play up until a pretty decent age And as a side note, one of the funniest things that I've ever seen ever is the Sesame Street version of Game of Thrones called Game of Chairs, where all the Game of Thrones characters play musical chairs and everyone dies. Everyone loses the game in a way that is related to their death on television. And it's very wicked and it's very funny. So go right now to YouTube and type in Sesame Street Game of Chairs. You will wonder how they got away with this on a show aimed at preschoolers. (laughs) <laughs> but the point is you have a deadly version of musical chairs in Celestial Toymaker in part two. When I'm 12 years old, I am there for that. It's a great idea. The trilogic game or the, the trilogic game 
as they call it, um, very consistently making me think I'm possibly wrong. Uh, that That's a thing called, is it the Tower of Hanoi? That was a point in the Sandifer reading. She said that the toy maker couldn't have been that brilliant because the smartest game that he had was only Towers <laughs> of Hanoi. Well, she is writing at an intellectual level that far outpaces your humble speaker because I had never heard of that game and I thought the Trilogic game was original to Doctor Who. Yes, it turns out it is a real game and it is played the way the toy maker plays it. And the only possible solution is 1,023 moves. But your average 12-year-old viewer in 1966 who did not have access to TARDIS, Erudatorum, and Wikipedia would probably never have heard of that game. Yeah. So I would argue that was actually good writing because it is not a game that most people would have heard of at the time. And it's not a game that I had heard of until I was you know, 40 years old. So any criticism of Towers of Hanoi being used in Toymaker I think is not necessarily – I think it's a little unfair. Jason, I'm I'm going to very rudely interrupt now because you've just sparked half a memory in me. I think, and I and I'm I don't just speak for myself here. I speak for the entire world when I say, um, yeah, the the UK version of Snakes and Ladders is called that because it's got snakes on it and ladders on it. Does you does the US version have not snakes? It's called shoots and ladders here, C H U T E S. And we have shoots oh, or I, playground I, I, slide instead I, of snakes. I, I understand the concept of a shoot, um, but the, does the board actually have pictures of snakes or does it have pictures of shoots? Pictures of shoots. See, so it's one of those yeah. slight, yeah, it's the old pavement sidewalk thing again, isn't it? You say tomato, <laughs> I say tomato. No, what's the other way around? I say potato. Everyone says potato. Literally, nobody says potato. We did have the American vice president who didn't know how to spell the word potato, but that's a story for a different kind I, of podcast altogether. Oh, poor old Dan Quayle. I mean, that starts to look like the golden age of statesmanship these days, doesn't it? He is actually credited with saving the republic when he told Mike Pence not to dispute the election in the year 2020. <laughs> All of a sudden, Dan Quayle is a hero of democracy. Ah, uh, it's unbelievable. Well, people are starting to look fondly back. Oh, sorry, I wasn't going to do politics. Don't get me banned for 12 <laughs> hours from Zencaster. Um, yeah, people are starting to look fondly back on the absolutely spineless, dithering blancmange of a prime minister we had called David Cameron, the man who started all this nonsense that's going on over here. And speaking of spineless, that's probably why you have snakes instead of shoots on your version of Snakes and Ladders, because of David Cameron. It would be pigs. Oh, oh yeah, that's got very salty, Mark. Are you going to contextualise that for the younger members of your audience? I don't think this will make it in. I thought I, thought I was going to. I'm going to I am. I, I thought to myself, don't swear, John. You know, Mark does a nice podcast here. Just don't swear. And now you're talking about the whole David Cameron pig thing. Which was the funniest thing of which, because I, I remember just just rolling with laughter all night reading Twitter when that was happening. Because um, people were making jokes and people being shocked and making comparisons to Dark Mirror. Um, sorry, folks, I'm not going to go into it. If you don't know about David Cameron and the pig's head, it's probably Googleable. Um, <laughs> I will go into it on a side note that I work off of a street called Downing Street in Manhattan. <laughs> and there is, a, there is a young man who lives on Downing Street who has a pet pig that often is seen walking his pet pig down Downing Street. Oh, wow. and every time I see that pig, that Black Mirror episode gets in my head and I cannot get rid of it. Yes. I need to switch jobs just to get away from that Downing Street pig. 
Who's the Prime Minister? It's, um, it's Bill Tanner, isn't it? Uh, Rory Kinnear. Or is it? Yes. I misremembered that. Anyway, the, my point is that reading these thousands and thousands of tweets of people going, ha, 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 he, he was fellated by a severed pig's head. There we go. Don't have to Google it now. Nobody at any point, well, said, oh, that doesn't sound like the sort of thing he would do. It's like just <laughs> the, the natural assumption was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's right up his alley, that is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Doctor Who's good, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I hadn't heard of the Towers of Hanoi either. I only discovered it after listening to the story for this podcast and then doing a bit of background reading because they mention it in About Time as well. But it did make me think about the, tri- the trilogic game this time in the sense of what game is this that the toy maker can fast forward it like 300 moves at a time? Um without it affecting the Doctor's performance or gameplay or strategy or anything like it, that. It, it does complain about the extent to which the toy maker is trying to put him off, I think. Yeah. So we, we're going with Trilogic, are we? Do we have to now refer to Derry Lee Triangles? <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, the three movies, uh, Star Trek 1, Star Trek 2, and Star Trek 3, would be a trilogy. A trilogy. I'm up for that. That was a pretty lame analogy. So, Mark, that was, just uh, cut that out and reset this. <laughs> I don't know what I liked it. It's a hill that I am prepared to be moderately injured on, that one. <laughs> it's not a better than Star Trek I've, 1 to 3 because then you have 4, 5, and 6. Ah, well, the, the worst crime, and this is worse than anything that's happened ever in the history of any universes, is when the people started calling a collection of four films, a quadrilogy, rather than a tetralogy, which is what it would be in the sensible world that I ruled. <laughs> you would blame the makers of the Alien 1 through 4 DVD box that who called it the Alien Quadrilogy. Quadrilogy, they did. They did that. Or if it was Pip and Jane Baker, it would be a tetrapology. Hey, bringing it back. That is awesome, Jason. <laughs> so if you take the Pip and Jane Baker stories, Terror of the Vervoids, The Ultimate Foe, and Mark of the Ronnie, then you would have a trilogy. Hey. There we go. And now we've come full circle. <laughs> Del Dexeter. Yes, indeed. I guess Good we're work. all studiously avoiding talking about Celestial Toymaker. <laughs> well, yeah, no. there's a beam here, isn't there? We're, we're, I, think, I think we're, we're circling it in a sort of renaissance kind of a way. You know, it's like, yeah, dive straight in there if you like. But no, let me, you know, let me drop in my three complaints then. I've got three main complaints, especially about part two. You're and diving straight in, aren't you? Have you had enough of the foreplay now, Jason? Yeah, well, you just, <laughs> I, I want to provoke a reaction out of Simon, and I think by dropping in these three points, I will get him to go off on one of his rants. Oh, good. Okay. Right. I'm ready. <laughs> three problems from least to worst. Number one is a problem that I hadn't noticed until I read Rob Shearman's and Toby Haydock's Running Through Corridors, Volume 1. And it was so – I think it was Toby Haydock's observation. Nobody – tells William Hartnell before he goes on vacation and is laying down his audio tracks for parts two and three that its chair number is not a complete sentence. It's an interrupted sentence. So instead of saying its chair number and cut off, he says its chair number, period. 
And when you watch that and listen to that now, after reading Running Through Carters, you're so busy cracking up that you miss the next three or four minutes. This is like in The the Empire Strikes Back, where the the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi says Luke's dying on Hoth, and Ben Kenobi says, you must go to the Dagobah system. And Luke says, the Dagobah system? <laughs> <laughs> The equivalent is Paul Jericho in The Five Doctors <laughs> saying the Constitution clearly states that where the High Council is unanimous, <laughs> period, end of sentence. <laughs> and then just, Flavia, Flavia has to jump in, as in this case we are, to, fin- to finish the sentence. It's just it's really bad dialogue reading, and the line reading is so bad and thus so funny that everything else is blotted out for the next several minutes until you stop laughing. <laughs> that is problem number one. Problem number two. Problem number two is is Dodo, but oh. I want to save that for last. So problem number three is the use of the N word, and in this case, everything yeah. that Sanders says about the use of the N word is absolutely correct. Yeah. I don't care who wrote this, whether that was a Brian Hales line or a Donald Tosh line or a Jerry Davis line, because we still don't know who wrote which parts of the episode, or if it was just an ad lib by the actor. In 1966, there was absolutely no way that word ever should have gone out. And I didn't even know it was there because it's covered up on the narration because they have Peter Purvis drop in some narration over that word so you can't hear it being said. I didn't know it was there until I read Sandifer, and she's 100% right. No, absolutely. You you can't – sorry, Jason, I keep interrupting you. I absolutely cannot disagree with that. I would say that – in that context, which is the eeny, meeny, miny, mo thing, it's not—it's a nursery rhyme. It's a, it's a thing kids said, um, and wasn't really the, the, just the, there wasn't this level of critical thinking about important issues like that at the time. So this—I don't think this was like a, a conscious expression of hatred. I think this is—it's it, it, just somebody very, very carelessly using. Um, a, a, a phrase that you're quite right in 1966 wouldn't have been okay, but now it's just completely beyond beyond acceptance. The actor who delivered the line was Jewish, and thus in the UK a minority himself. He honestly should have known better. And I don't know. I think he was pretty old at the time, so maybe he didn't realize. Maybe he wasn't paying attention. But there were so many people in between him and the airing of the thing four weeks later that should never ever have been allowed to happen. And there's no other Doctor Who episode that uses it ever so what went wrong yeah <laughs> i think it was just something that was used at the time and i don't think anyone thought about the connotations they just thought that is a children's rhyme and they didn't think about the language that was being used because it was just so embedded in um uh in the in the um uh, sort of uh language sorry i couldn't get my thought out there um but it's that rhyme was still being used with slight moderation when i was young so it wasn't something that disappeared overnight and that's that's dreadful it's really really awful but the adults i knew used that and taught that to me i didn't i don't remember ever saying it but it's a possibility that i did because i didn't know what the connotations of it were and it's only later on you think, hang on, this was something that was embedded in our culture 
as a child and we didn't know what we were saying. And it doesn't excuse it and it doesn't no. mean make it right, but it is part of the context. It, it's yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with you, Simon. I don't think it, it's what, what I was trying to say, uh, but you you've done it rather more adroitly and less clumsily than I did. Because it's not the, the, reversing attitudes like that isn't just a slamming on the brakes and doing a handbrake turn. It's like I mean, how long did we have in the UK uh, a marmalade company with a, just an a, appalling logo that they had to be just you know talked out of basically um because and it just it because it was so much part of the cultural landscape it's one it's like goldfish not knowing what water is you know you don't you don't look critically at absolutely everything that surrounds you particularly not when you're a kid um you know so the, these processes are are sometimes slower than i wish they could be but that they are so yeah i, I you know i i don't think this was anything uh, I don't think there was any hatred involved. I don't think, um, well, this is not true because there were clearly vast prejudices around at the time. Oh, this isn't funny at all. Uh, but I don't. I don't think anyone sort of got up that morning and thought, um, "Who can I offend? Who, how, how, who can I punch down?" Uh, I just don't. I don't think that level of thought applied to it. See, here in the States, the rhyme is catch a tiger by the toe. I'm not aware of that word ever being used in the States version of the rhyme. Yeah. Ah, right. You see, that's the that's the version I remember using. Me too. I've only heard the tiger version of it. I probably just slightly too young to remember the uh, the you know the older offensive mm -hmm. version of it. So it obviously was, you know, more phased out by that point. And uh, and I'll put a link to your blog, Jason, uh, which I read earlier today, because I think your point really is it you know it's it's not there in a way to you know to spread hatred or anything like that because the story doesn't re isn't really competent enough i think it's your argument the story isn't really competent enough to even to be deliberately racist it's it is carelessness and thoughtlessness i think um more than a a targeted uh you know kind of a hateful message uh, i think if, if i've understood the gist of what you're saying right and, and i completely agree with it as well most of the script was written on the back of a cocktail napkin five minutes before airtight. It was a very late script with three different authors mm. who went through it. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's the same with the celestial in the title that I I don't think it was consciously a Chinese derogatory term used at the time. I think it was more sort of stars and that that kind of thing more than it was consciously the yeah i i may be wrong i don't know what was going through the thoughts of donald tosh when he suggested that i don't know whether then that um developed into the costume that michael goff wears for the story but he hasn't got Asian makeup, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing, which considering only a few stories earlier, we did have that. We could easily yes. have gone down that route here as well. So it's it's a really difficult one. It, so I don't know what you think about that that argument. Uh, that was one of the things that the Sandifer um, review really brought to the fore again, and it was something that I wasn't aware of before that which might be my my problem i don't know if it's an argument about 
cultural appropriation, then yeah, you know, absolutely, I'm on board with that. I, I don't know if entirely it is, but so certainly that that's that's the, the 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 principal way of reading it. But I remember is it Iron Man three? Uh, you know, where they have sort of Ben Kingsley uh, playing a you know sort of uh, a, 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 it is the Mandarin, isn't it? He's called. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember watching that going, oh, no, 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 no. But then, you know, they are clever enough to have plotted their way out of that. And, the, you know, there's a reveal about halfway through and you go, all oh, right, OK, this is good. We are past that. We, we, you know, we have this degree of sensitivity now that we didn't used to have. Um, so, you know, this, this is what I mean about these processes being quite slow. I wish they weren't, but, the, you know, they are. It just takes a while Um just takes a while to nag everybody into doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Greyhound leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. So my third point, which is almost inimical to enjoyment of the story, and then I'm going to segue into, into Simon. Dodo keeps giving the game away to characters that she knows are trying to literally kill her, and she keeps telling them how to win. And Jackie Lane did an amazing job with the character, even though the character was never written the same way twice, week to week. The people who hired her quit the show as soon as she got there, and then the new incoming team immediately fired her to bring in somebody else. So she never got a fair shake, but she is game for every iteration of the character she's given. She's great in part one of the arc when she's playing one accent. She's great in the rest of the story playing a different accent. She's phenomenal (laughs) In The Gunfighters, she gives one of the best companion performances ever, and I do mean ever. So in this story, the fact that she is being written as if someone thought that the name Dodo was a literal definition of her level of intellect (laughs) is really unfortunate because you just can't ever forgive her as a character for stupidly trying to get herself killed every five minutes in the story. (sighs) Okay, Jason, calm down. Go to the corner. Let Simon take over. Uh, when when you mentioned about um, Michael Goff being in the Batman films, he was in he was in a bunch of Tim Burton movies. Um, he's in Sleepy Hollow, and I think he's in I think he's in Alice in Wonderland, but I can't remember what he plays. It would be amazing if it was a dodo, but I don't think it is. <laughs> Sleepy Hollow came out in '99, so that's about a decade after Batman. Yeah, Alice in Wonderland would have come out like right before he died, like in two thousand nine or so. So I'm gonna have to look that up. I think he he died twenty eleven, but he was in his nineties at that point. um... So while Simon goes off on his rant, I am going to Google Michael Goff's stage credits, and then we'll come back to it. Oh yeah, look up Conga K O N G A. It's brilliant. You mean Congo, the Michael Crichton movie where no, Tim no, Curry no. plays a Hungarian? No, 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 no. Conga. It, With an A yeah. at the end. A-O-N-G-A. It's like King Kong, if King Kong was rubbish, had Michael <laughs> had Michael Goff in it, had a, a chimpanzee that gets enlarged using some serum and turns into a gorilla somehow, and then it climbs, because we don't have the Empire State Building, it climbs Big Ben's clock tower. And I said Hungarian – he was playing a Hungarian mercenary named Hermerker Homolka. Don't ask me why I remember that. Whoa. But when you want Tim Curry, Tim Curry to play a Hungarian mercenary, it makes no sense, no sense at all. <laughs> and you are correct. Uh, since that went on for so long, John, I had time to look it up. 
his very last do go on a bit. Sorry. His very last credit is the voice of the dodo bird in Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of the dodo bird, (laughs) please, please take over. I don't think it's fair to say that it was stupid. They're just very friendly. They were. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't their fault. Yeah. But Dodo in this story. I don't know what the writers were thinking because she's full of enthusiasm for the games and she's throwing herself into them, but she never learns. In episode one, we've got, oh, I love clowns. Oh, I love clowns. Clowns are great. And then, Stephen, those clowns aren't funny anymore. <laughs> in, in episode two, oh, they're playing card people. Oh, aren't they lovely? They're so wonderful. They're so great. And then suddenly, oh, no, they're really creepy and I don't like them anymore. And they're trying to put us off the game. Yes, Dodo, Stephen has told you that in episode one. And now he's told you in episode two that they're trying to put you off the game and you haven't paid any attention. And then in episode three, she does, oh, Mrs. W- oh. Mrs. Weeks and oh, and um, the sergeant. Oh, they're so sergeant Rugg. They're just lovely, aren't they? Oh, they're such lovely people, and they should be people, Stephen. They should be. And now they're trying to put us off, and they're not going to get to the TARDIS first. And here we go again. And then she falls for it with Cyril, as well <laughs> in episode four, when he is quite obviously sinister right from the moment he arrives, and she falls for his tricks every time, and it's just like. Okay, I know someone has to be has to be this in this role because the audience needs reminding because we might have people who are joining with each episode, so we've got to restate what's going on. But really, come on. It's not fair on poor old Jackie Lane. She deserved much better. Because Stephen, Stephen has written as brilliantly as always, and he's very matter-of-fact and down the line, and he's not going to play these games, but he's got to play these games. And so he's going to play, but play by the rules and he's not going to take any of Dodo's nonsense. And he's seeing through all of these characters and he's there and he's straightforward and he's not, he's not cheating. He's going to do it. And then he's having to deal with Dodo just going off on one every episode saying, no, look, no, I'm not doing this. Oh my goodness. It just drives me mad. In defense of Jackie Lane, the costume that she wears in this story, which is reportedly the very first miniskirt in the history of British television, that is a very popular convention cosplay. I see a lot of young congoers cosplaying as Dodo in this story, and that's a great thing. More Dodo cosplay. It is a good costume, even if her character as scripted is the worst thing ever. It is great (laughs) to know that 50-odd years later you can see somebody dressing as her in this story at any convention you go to. Yeah, and I love the Bob Dylan cap as well. And yeah, the whole thing is really, really 1965, which is really good. And I really like Peter Purvis's jumper as well, although he wasn't keen on it. I like that costume. The the whole thing's got a a fabulous aesthetic. Um, And, you know, it's why I'm glad that there are the colour photos. I mean, it works in black and white, but it is incredibly reminiscent of... uh, what what I think of as the golden age of the Avengers, which is the Diana Rigg, Patrick McNee stuff, you know, Steed and Mrs. Peel. It's just got that kind of ever so slightly, um, I don't even know the adjective for it, but the, there's just something unique about that, that way it's all designed, the set design, the costumes, everything. It just looks great. 
Yeah, and I think the toy maker is very much in the mould of an Avengers villain from this period as well. So I mean, we there's um, an episode in the Tara King um, series called Game with Peter Jeffrey as a mad games person who's pitting his his um, enemies in um, versions of board games that he he's created that are are really brilliant and it's a really good episode but i think there's also um a steed and mrs peel black and white episode which would have been on around the same time which has um deadly games but i can't remember which one it is so that's not much help but they have to play like um oh oh i can't remember it's all gone. Yeah. It's <laughs> it all just merges with the adventure game after a while, doesn't yes. it? Yes. There's um if you you know, if 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 Jackie Lane was if Dodo wasn't there and Peter was being played by Patrick McGowan, Michael Goff would be a brilliant number two from the prisoner, you Wouldn't know. Wouldn't he just Yeah. So so my theory as to why Dodo isn't firing all cylinders in this story and and also to some extent Stephen, I think, because I think Dodo displays more emotional intelligence because some of the games rely on her relating to the toy makers servants as people whereas Stephen dismisses them entirely as as puppets basically is in the first episode when they first arrive in the toy room there are the screens that are showing them visions of their past lives and the doctor gives them very stark warnings about you must not look at those screens but we don't find out why so I think that must have in some way drained some of their intelligence when they uh, when they saw them from, from the Dalek master plan and from the massacre and uh, and Dodo. Did, did she, she she sees herself the day her mother died, doesn't she? Yeah, at the funeral, I think. Yeah, it's quite a quite a, a, a grim thing to to touch on and then not really revisit. If that was the modern series, that would be you know kind of uh, something about mm. the crux of the story, I think, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I wonder if that's one of the things that sort of got a bit lost between the various versions of the story because mm. sort of reading the, the complete history write-up about it, they say that the earlier drafts were a lot darker than the story that eventually came. So maybe that's something that sort of just was the start of something that was going to feed through the story that then got lost because Jerry Davis comes in and brushes over everything and makes it a bit simpler than it, it had been before. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of things that are touched on here that would have, would have enhanced the story if they'd, been, if they'd been dug into a little bit more. So, like, the fact that the Doctor had previously visited this realm is fascinating because it's not an era where the Doctor goes back to anywhere that he's been before. I think it's not really till the third Doctor era where he already has pre-knowledge of aliens and planets. First two Doctors, everywhere he turns up, it's brand new, and he has to mainly discover everything from scratch, does it? unless he's meeting the Daleks or the Cybermen again or whatever. Um, it's only the third Doctor, and he says, oh, yeah, I've been there, I've seen that, I've seen that and stuff. So it's really fascinating that he's been there before. And then the idea that the, the playthings of the toy maker have been real people who've had their life stolen because they've lost games to him and uh, and they're competing to try and win their freedom is a really really dark idea which feels like was probably an element of the of the original script that Hales yeah walked away from because it was too dark it's, it's, i mean it's it's dark to start with but the, it turns out there's a way of winning as well which makes yeah. it super dark 
there are two bits of tie-in literature that we should discuss at this point, yeah. and then I want to talk about the production aesthetic. There was, in the short-lived Marvel Comics Doctor Who title in the States in the mid-1980s, they would rerun the DWM comic Colorized, and then they would have a backup feature about three pages featuring a villain without the Doctor. And I think those comics were also drawn from DWM. So one of the three-page backup features was a story about the toy maker abducting a riverboat gambler from the 19th century United States and defeating him at a game of cards. That's a really, really good sort of prelude as to how somebody falls into the toy maker's realm. And we never really find out who – so it's the same three actors in parts one, two, and three – always playing the antagonists. We never find out who they were before they get drawn into the realm. So that's a really good bit of tie-in literature to this story. Now, a much less successful bit of tie-in literature to this story is, I think, the 1999 past Doctor adventure, Divided Loyalties, which tells the story of when the first Doctor visited the toy maker previously. It turns out he was part of a Gallifreyan gang of school kids called the Decca, that every Time Lord renegade that you've ever met on television <laughs> is one of the Decca. And there's the young Ranny and the young Master and the young Monk and the young War Chief, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and they, in this really clunkily written 20-page sequence, they go to the toy maker's realm and one of them gets killed and the others escape and make a vow never to speak of this again. If you go to the ratings guide run by my friend Stacy Smith, there are many nuclear white-hot reviews tearing divided loyalties to pieces for its plotting and its ideas and its overlong discussion of Adric's unfortunate uh, lack of deodorant. It's a really – Gary Russell has written some wonderful books that I admire. This is not one of them. So divided loyalties is the take on the toy maker myth that you did not need. Sorry, Gary. Uh, shall we play a game? I've, I've come up with a couple of uh, fiendish games in the in the style of the toy maker. Um, if uh, if we'd like to play a couple of rounds of my first game, no, I, d I don't think we will. But <laughs> <laughs> See, Mark is trying to get revenge on me for all the games that I've made him play <laughs> on my very popular in France podcast. <laughs> you never get to play those games, you see. So I think you should go first. Just stay tuned for about three months and you may see the worm turn. But uh, yes, I will, I will volunteer to go first. <laughs> first of all, let us play my alphabetical game, a game for the mind, the developed mind. Oh, in that case, I'm out. Forget it. <laughs> I don't even know what the powers of Hanoi are. <laughs> Dangerous for the mind that has become old, lazy, or weak. So I don't anticipate any problems with uh, with you lot. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give you the title of a Doctor Who story. If you give me the title of the story back, but with the words in alphabetical order. <laughs> Richard Osman can sue. You know that, don't you? <laughs> his, his people are better than our people. We don't want to see him in court. <laughs> so if I say the Ark, the answer would be Ark the... If I say Black Orchid, the answer would be... Black Orchid? Yes, correct. <laughs> Easy, right? Okay, so the first one, and you've got 10 seconds to, uh, to answer <laughs> these. 
How many rels? So, the first one, Jason, is Terror of the Zygons. <laughs> of Terror of the Zygons. Correct. Cool. Well done. Simon, your title is Fugitive of the Jadoon. Fugitive Jadoon of the... Correct. Ooh, pressure, pressure, pressure. <laughs> and John, Rise of the Cybermen. Cybermen <laughs> of Rose Rise the. Correct. Oof. Fantastic. That's uh, that's four marks for round one. Round two, we're back round to Jason. Slightly longer titles this time. <laughs> Doctor Who and the Silurians. And Dr. Silorians the Who? Correct. Oh, this is, you're good at this, Jason. <laughs> I know my ABCs. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, okay. Last of the Time Lords. Last Lords of the Time. Correct. That would be a great title in and of itself. Last Lords of the Time. <laughs> I would watch that story. And John? Yes. The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Dalek Earth Invasion of the the. Correct. Absolutely fantastic. I did a third round just in case, uh, just in case that all went really well, which it has. It does really <laughs> well, is it? <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> now, before you give me my next clue, I just want to set the stakes here. If I lose the game, does that mean that I am forever trapped in your realm and I am plaything of Mark and I have to show up on the next trap one as a disembodied voice? <laughs> taunting your yeah. next guest or does it merely mean that i get to come on trap one again next week i think you could come on but you're invisible and intangible so you know yeah. <laughs> be fine it's chair number <laughs> chair it's <laughs> number okay so the third and final round jason the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> Bartholomew's Eve Massacre of St. The. Correct. Fantastic. Oh, 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 it's all to lose now, isn't it, Sai? Sai. The Battle of Ranscor of Colos. <laughs> Oh, hang now, on. that's a cheat. Now, is, is that hyphenated or hyphen colos, yeah. and it's one word, or is it three separate words? It's six words altogether. Ah. Av, battle, colos, of Ranscore. One more word. Oh, Oh, you could feel my cogs turning there. Sorry, Mark. I I think my flat is just about to go through a tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last one for John is 
the greatest show in the galaxy. Whoa, galaxy greatest in where'd I get to? <laughs> galaxy greatest. Uh, in. Unless we're going for ah. the MC Tunny long count, I think we're out of time here. Yeah, that's that's fair. I I yield. I yield. Yeah, so you got half of it. It was the the show. Oh, the, the, the show. I didn't. Yeah, I've missed one of the the's. Or show the the. <laughs> I've missed one of the the's from the the. I say show the there. That's right. Yeah. Oh well, well done, chaps. The the, the better men won. <laughs> You'd be delighted to know we've got another game for later on in the episode. <laughs> Woo! I hope it's this one again. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, this game isn't funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, why were you giving John the answer? He's playing against you. <laughs> oh, but he's so lovely and human. Yahoo! <laughs> Great hunter trap one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? Talking about the aesthetic, one of the things that is great about the story and makes it fun to listen to can be summed up in two words. Simpson, Dudley. Although not in that order. He is sometimes the subject of eye rolls because especially in the Tom Baker era, almost every score sounds the same. Two horns and an organ. However, (laughs) even in season 17, his themes stay in your head and they're really, really earworms. The stuff that he was doing in the Hartnell era, he did great scores for planet of giants and his score in this story is just bonkers off the wall. It's great. It suits the tone of the story really well, doesn't it? It's it, it's playful and sort of childlike. It's uh, yeah, I really liked it as well. The music for the dancing floor is particularly brilliant because it's it's slightly wrong. It should be a a really sort of positive dance um, piece of music, but actually, it's slightly sinister and weird. And doesn't sound quite right, like the notes are not quite quite right or not quite in the right order. And that gives it such a sinister feel. And you can imagine um, the characters waltzing off and getting smaller and smaller and smaller to that music. It's really superb. Mm. There are bits that I think you would, well, you really wish you could see. And, and if they were done well, would be would really enhance the story, I think, particularly the dolls being destroyed in various ways on the chairs because the, the description yeah, because some of uh, those things are nasty that happen to those dolls they get decapitated and frozen and or dodo gets frozen because she's silly enough to sit on the chair in the first place <laughs> um i'm not going back there honest but again <laughs> some of them are, are really nasty aren't they the one that the the one at the end where it folds up with the characters inside i'm trying to imagine how they did that and yeah it would be really fascinating to see in some ways it feels like we've got possibly the lamest episode of the story that exists <laughs> and if we had one of the other episodes i think maybe its reputation would be higher because there is more more to see the set for the hopstop scotch the tardis hopscotch isn't the most dynamic of sets but i imagine the kitchen would have been or the um and the dancing floor and the obstacle course with the clowns in episode one would have been a really 
interesting sets that they were were in. You would see more of the toy room and and the toy makers' dolls' house and things like that. I think would have been uh, would have been interesting to see. But may, maybe maybe those bits are enhanced on audio because you're supplying the pictures yourself and imagining. That's a possibility, of course, as well. Because it was only the second time I listened to this occurred to me, like how the dolls must be human size, I suppose, to to sit in the chairs and then be subject to the to the different fates that that they suffer. Yeah, they they they, ex- they expand in the first episode, don't they? There's something about them growing in size. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the yeah the, the clowns do. Yeah, I suppose the dolls. Oh, do sorry. Well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're quite right. The loose cannon reconstruction of Toymaker, which is available on Daily Motion, they, I believe, it's been a couple of years now since I've seen it, but I believe they animate the deaths of the various dolls in in that part too. So you can see their CGI, their primitive CGI take on how those dolls are off. I remember it being pretty cool, but I haven't watched it in about two years now. And there are lots of interesting directorial touches in the existing episode uh, there's the moment where steven turns round and suddenly the toy maker is right next to him and i have no idea how they achieved that but it's a brilliant brilliant moment and he's gone from being intangible to suddenly right next to him and i'm hoping that if ever they find the rest of this or some of some more of this, that there are equally brilliant visual moments like that. So it seems like Bill Sellers was pushing the boat out a bit and and was an interesting director. Uh, though strangely, he only did this one and never came back. Yeah, because I suppose you don't you get Michael Goff on his own in a lot of this, don't you? Because William Hartnell is on holiday. And it'd, be, it'd be great to see more of those two squaring off against each other. But I suppose for mm-hmm. the middle two episodes, he's just acting on his own, is he? He's, he's only appearing on screens to to Stephen and Dodo. Yeah, um, with a hand, floating with some, <laughs> with some yeah, blocks. He's in the room on his own, really, for the rest of it, yeah. which uh, I just feel a bit of a waste of him, I suppose. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a shame that there's no kind of return to it. I mean, it's, it's really very heavily flagged at the end of the final test, you know, the, Episode four. I was like, oh well, we're never gonna see him again. Oh, oh, don't be so sure. It's like, no, we never saw him again. Yet. Ah. Uh-huh. Well, he was of course supposed to come back in season twenty-three, and we have the novelization of that missing story. Plus we have the big finish remount with David Bailey from Robots of Death playing the new toy maker. It's not as good a script as this one. It, it's really a very 80s script with video games and amusement parks. Mm. It's set in, set in Blackpool, though. It gets points for that. Where I have, I have never been. I, oh, don't go. God, it's horrible. But uh, sorry, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's Blackpool imagination. was junked in the, in the 1980s. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to say that. There's, there's lots to love about Blackpool. But um, the, my familiarity with it, Jason, only comes from the fact that in the uh, 70s and 80s, that's where the Doctor Who Museum was. So, you know, we would do like a little family trip to see the illuminations. It would be about this time of year as well when they switched the lights on and I would get to go to the the Doctor Who Museum. That was good. I used to live in Blackpool when I was a kid. 
Um, and uh, and much like the celestial toy maker, you having good memories of it from from when you were a kid, and then doing it through adult size, uh, it doesn't really live up to it. Uh, oh. so. oh, my, my, my good friend Lawrence that I used to do a podcast with, he's from Blackpool as well. See, now I'm imagining a thirteenth, a fourteenth Doctor toy maker episode, possibly with Neil Patrick Harris, where the toy maker comes to Carlisle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And goes, there's nothing here. <laughs> was this not how your, um, your 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 rise to Doctor Who stardom started, Mark, with uh, your your role as Carlisle Who fan being interviewed by the local paper about about a doctor? Yeah, doctor. Which one was it? Was, it? So what, it was um, it was the one it was the Hyde. bells of St John's, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Was it? Well, it was Hyde where the. Um, where the doctor and Clara are talking about, uh, so the, the user, they're looking for the opposite of the expression, ignorance is bliss. He says, what's the opposite of bliss? And Clara says, Carlisle. Oh, uh, because she's from, from Lancashire, which is where, where Blackpool is. I think the character's from Blackpool as well, is she? I think. Yeah, I think, I think Clara's supposed to be from Blackpool. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I think so. It's sort of a, a Cumbria-Lancashire rivalry thing there, but obviously a lot of people even in the UK, don't know what Carlisle is. So uh, I'd mentioned it in my blog, and then I got like record numbers of hits because people were searching, like, what is Carlisle? Why is Carlisle the opposite of place? And then, yeah, the, the local radio station, BBC Radio Cumbria, got in touch to, to talk about oh, it as well. That's right. You, you, were a, you were a regular correspondent on what late, later became known as the Highlanders podcast, but we didn't know who you were. <laughs> you were just down as Carlisle Who fan, so we just took to say hello, Carl. Assuming that that, yeah. was, that was your name, Carl I. Lahoufan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Happy days, eh? The much-missed Highlanders oh, podcast. That was rubbish. Very, very much inspired me to, oh. to start a podcast. Well, that's the, it was that's the number good. 23 podcast in France. <laughs> uh, je parle français très bien. <laughs> So what do we think of the of the resolution? It's it's something it's the one and only time the doctor does this, isn't it? Is to perfectly mimic somebody else's voice. Well, you say that, but you're you're forgetting when he does it at the end of Mask of Mandragora. Oh he does. <laughs> I wouldn't even say no to a salami sandwich. I have forgotten that. I've forgotten that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's fail- failures of attention to detail like this, Mark, that means you're only the 27th most popular <laughs> one. <laughs> but it's true. It is a, um, a talent that the Doctor has not shown before this episode and then doesn't show again for another another 10 years or so. So it's, yeah, it's... It's clever because it finishes the story and it's it's good. And I love the way Hartnell turns his head away and goes into the dark dark corner of the TARDIS control room to go and do that line so they don't have to match it uh, up brilliant. with him. He's brilliant at impersonations. You should hear his impersonation of John Colshaw. <laughs> fantastic. But... I mean, as resolutions go, that it's quite neat, and it's using the toy maker's power against him, which is using what has been blatantly in front of us the whole time to finish the story. So, there are worse resolutions to a Doctor Who story than that, I think. 
And it's also very well directed, bearing in mind that even though you have a very limited budget and a very small studio, you have some really good directors in season three. You have Michael Imason, who did the arc and made it appear like a multi-million dollar feature film. There are some good visual flourishes, and I think someone said this earlier in the recording, in the surviving part four of this story. So you get the sense that it would have been a very nice thing to look at if we had all four of these surviving episodes. There was certainly a lot of attention to costumes and sets and what limited visual effects they needed. The resolution is, I think, really satisfying. And yeah, I would like to see all four episodes. But it's a thing that I used to like about the Hartnell episodes. And now, now that I'm an old man, I just worry about it. Is that the, you know, the... Um, the, the the forewords and the afterwards, you know, where where one story segues directly into another, so you get the arc moving directly into Celestial Toymaker, removing moving directly into the um, the uh, gunfighters. Um, are you they they must be exhausted. I mean, I, I'm tired, and I just spent eight hours in a shop, and it had, it had like three three universal threats to deal with in a day. <laughs> Yeah, and I haven't eaten. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Except the doctor is invisible and toy maker and spends most of the gunfighters in a prison cell. So he's, he's, he's having the time of his life. <laughs> I, I haven't kept up with Big Finish. Have they found a way somehow to shoehorn stories in between these ones, do you think? I know they've got a dodo now, but I, uh, I'm, not sure that they, uh, I'm not sure that they're sandwiched between, between any of these stories. No, I think they, they go for stories set after Stevens left, I think their last box set was just the Doctor and Dodo yeah. because there is a gap. Yeah, there. there's not a box set of like six adventures of them traveling the universe looking for a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a, a Doctor, first Doctor Stephen and Dodo one, which is the prequel to the Abominable Snowmen. I think isn't there? That's that's called yes. With, um, yeah, with uh, the uh, the mysteries of Death Sen, I think I've heard half of that. Mm, yeah, secrets of Death Death Sen, I think it is. Yeah. We, yeah, that's Lauren Cornelius playing the new Dodo. She's been making the rounds of the various podcasts. She's really super nice, having heard her on several interviews now. Very fan-friendly. The, the thing I like, what, what you said there, John, what I like the way they've done this one is they put the end, the very end of the arc, like a, like a modern-day pre-title sequence on the, on the CD, yeah. which I think it, it will be the same on the, on the vinyl when it comes out. I really yeah. like the way... Peter Purvis is the narrator on this one. He so matter-of-factly says, in the far distant oh, future, the tired earth plunges into the sun and is destroyed. Yes. Just in a very... There's no emotion still, in that whatsoever. Still, never mind. <laughs> Moving along. Yeah. <laughs> um, rather brilliantly, uh, you know, he, he, he sort of half the time... In, uh, and it is, I absolutely agree with you, that introduction is fantastic on the CDs and I presume will be replicated on the vinyl. Mm. Um... Yeah, well, like half the time he calls it TARDIS and half the time he calls it the TARDIS. Mm. And I, I, I have a very soft spot for when they just call it TARDIS. It's probably in that period where they were they were doing both and it was moving towards the TARDIS, wasn't it, I suppose? Mm -hmm. uh, and the ship had, been, had already been dropped, I guess. Yeah. The yes. ship? You still call it the <laughs> ship? That's my worst Peter Capaldi impression. <laughs> But yeah, I think um, so. The, the the vinyl is out now for for thirty pounds, and is probably quite a good investment given that the CD is now for sale 
on uh, on Amazon for £184.76 at the moment. If anyone would like mine for for £180, I'm quite happy to go with that. I'll throw in free postage and packing. <laughs> I'll do 175 <laughs> and I, I will drive it to your house and sing you a song. Is it... Nobody's going to buy that, though, are they? This is like when you see the um, the Blu-ray collection. They will have to have heard this. Well, obviously, yeah, yeah. There'll be sudden rush in France. Nobody will know why. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. No, it's like when the the Blu-ray sets come out. Uh, and then even though they are going to be done later on in just perfectly normal packaging, exactly the same discs, it's like the, the original packaging is suddenly for sale on uh, Jeff Bezos's amazing tax-free enterprise um, for hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And some of these steelbooks, flipping ridiculous mm. what people are asking. I can't imagine people pay that for a metal box. Do they? Do they? No, I don't. No, me. But speaking of packaging, isn't the packaging for the vinyl beautiful? What a wonderful cover. And very, very much a splash of colour compared to I mean I love I love the covers for these, but th- this is uh this is completely different and, and much more kind of psychedelic and colourful than, than the others. I'm interested to see if the spine is um is in the sort of red and yellow um as well, because the, the rest are all sort of um other than the abominable snow, which is white, they're also dark, dark blues and dark purples and blacks and things. Let's let's play another game. So so back by no demand at all is the famous trap one limerick challenge, oh, <laughs> as originated by Jason. So I hope I've done this. This, this was this, stolen Jason. from Carl Castle on NPR's Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. So you can you can you can thank the producers of Wait Wait Don't Tell Me for foisting this game upon the United Kingdom and Carlisle. Yeah, so he he can't can't take us to court though because Richard Osman's already got all our money. We're destitute now. <laughs> Copyright theft on the first game, right? I thought I couldn't steal yeah, another game from Richard Osman's House of Games, so I I'd raid uh, Trap One's existing archive. So who would like to go first? I will go first, so I have to be the, the first one out of the recording. The games don't get any fairer, but the playing cards are squarer. Oh, God. Among her other parts, she's the Queen of Hearts, an actor named Carmen. Silvera. Oh, oh very good. Correct. Who was also seen in the Dinosaur Invasion. She was. Yeah, I couldn't find something to, to rhyme with Invasion. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. Michael Goff was born in Malaysia. Uh, so oh, yeah. Malaysian and invasion right? very, very invasion well. Hat. Yeah. I've only got five lines to get from Michael Goff to. Uh, <laughs> 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 okay, would you like to go next, John? Yeah, absolutely fine. Okay. His games include a freezing chair, don't get trapped in his evil lair. He might come back as Neil Patrick Harris, but the toy maker's story we all had to miss was his mooted appearance in the nightmare. Fair. Yes, correct. 
No. Yes. What? No. That doesn't scan. Do the do, do the first four lines again. <laughs> that, that was that was that was a really bad rhyme there, Mark. Ooh. It was. Yeah. Come on. We could do better. What the, what the first four lines? It rhymes perfectly. His games include a freezing chair. Chair. Don't get tra- trapped in his evil lair. Lair. He might come back as Neil Patrick Harris, but the toy maker story we all had to miss was his mooting. Yeah. Nightmare. I, I, Harris and Miss don't right. rhyme, and then you you meet us. No, yeah, I'd, I'd like, I'd like, I'd like to speak to the adjudicator, please. Mark, if you were playing the Celestial Toymakers Listener Limerick Challenge, you would have been turned into a sheet of paper with a poem on it. Everyone's a critic. Mm-hmm. Right, go on then. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. The Toymakers clowns do as they're told, cheating with a dodgy fake blindfold. Clara has a high-pitched voice. It seems that she's not there by choice. But is she a splinter of Clara? Oswald. <sighs> yes. <laughs> uh, top marks all round. Fantastic. So, yeah, my headcanon is that uh, this is the first canonical appearance of a Clara splinter who helped the, the Doctor escape from the toy makers realm the first time he was there, but then became trapped and got turned into a clown. Well, there we go. You heard it here first. It's another Trap 1 exclusive. <laughs> uh, it makes me wish I had more headcanon. I've only got one bit, and that is the bit about the, the Doctor from the Wasps, the, the Nest Chronicles, isn't actually the fourth Doctor. He's the... He's the great curator. Ah. Ah, I see. Ah. Yes, that's as far as I've got with that. Well, tune into the Trap One podcast in December for a, another return to Nest Cottage when we'll be covering <gasps> Demon Quest when that comes out on vinyl, also from oh, Demon Music Group. Nice. I really like those ones. There's just something really odd about them, uh, but in a, in a good way. Yeah, it's Paul Mars. Yeah, so it's always good. It? Yeah, safe yeah. pair of hands. Yeah, yeah. All right, I must be taking my leave of Mark's demonic celestial realm. <laughs> if there's if there's any escape from Carlisle, I must try to find it. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, I'll just uh, we'll do a quick wrap up then. So, thank you very much, everybody, for for joining me for this episode. It's great to discuss this story with you, and uh, I will put links in the show notes to where you can all be found on Twitter and your various other endeavors. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs>